the, the text I've got today is, is one of my very favorites. It's John chapter 4. And I'm going to get into that in a minute. Before I do, I just want to talk about two, two little quotes I've got about why Jesus is our first value at encounter. Because we've got these four values, but there's a hierarchy. You know how there's, you know, sometimes people present themselves as an equal group, but there's always a, a leader. Like, you know, you just have to talk to them for five minutes. You're like, who's the leader? Just for a moment, think about who the leader is in your social circle. Everyone's like, it's me. It's me. <laughs> There's, all, there's always something going on. So Jesus is our first value, people is our second value, and then real and generous are just equal unto that. But we're all about Jesus first. So here's a quote. I just, it's going to be up on the screen behind me. It says this, For Christian believers, Jesus Christ embodies the personal and supernatural intervention of God in human history. For Christian believers, Jesus Christ embodies the personal and supernatural intervention of God in human history. That's good. That is, that is actually from a Bible dictionary, but it was so good that I stole it. It's, it I, don't, I have no idea who wrote it. It was just in a dictionary. But it's a great description of, of why encountering Jesus is first, because there's these two parts to it, a personal element and a supernatural element. It's one of the things that sets Christianity apart from every other religious belief system. And here's the second one. And this is from a guy who, if you've never heard of him before, if you stick around encounter, you'll definitely hear of him again, because I'm a huge fan. His name is Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And he was a martyr in the Second World War. He died at the hands of the Nazis, which is, you know, pretty badass just generally. But um, he died right at the end of the Second World War, basically, as it was all over. And uh, he was a pastor and a theologian, a Christian thinker. And he says this, really simple. To encounter God is to change. To encounter God is to change. It's inevitable. And when you have a face-to-face encounter with God, something changes in you. Something powerful happens. So we're going to get into that in a second. So John chapter 4, if you haven't read it, I'd encourage you, open your Bibles, um, open it up, read along with me. It'll be on the screen as well, probably. If you don't have a Bible, we've got a whole bunch of New Testaments we'd love to give you as a gift as well. So just take one on your way out. But John chapter 4 centers on an encounter with Jesus. And the reason I chose it is not just because it's one of my favorite passages, but because something happens in the personal and the supernatural that can't be denied. And we're going to dig into that. And it's a moment where one woman's life changes forever, and it actually changes her whole city. It is very profound. So let's listen from verse 1. Now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John, though in fact it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sukkah, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You're a Jew, and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Let's put a pin in it there. This is quite a big passage of scripture, so it's probably for everyone's benefit that we break it up. The first thing to note here is the human element. Jesus was tired. Jesus was interrupted. These are things that we sometimes skip over in the scriptures because it's much more interesting to hear Jesus feeding 5,000 than to hear Jesus was tired and sat down, right? But this is what's happening. And when he goes to the Samaritan city, he doesn't actually go to it. He's just going through it. He's being interrupted. He's not even going here. So much in our lives can happen when we're allowing ourselves to be interrupted for God. 
John helps us see Jesus' humanity in this moment, and then the Samaritan woman appears, and it really starts getting good. So I want to give you three things out of this conversation that's going to help you understand why Jesus is at the center of encounter. Okay? Let's get into the first one. If you're the note-taking type, write this down. It'll be real good. And it's going to be gold, tweetable, you know, grammable, whatever you do. Number one, Jesus encounters people personally. Jesus encounters people personally. We can't examine this passage, though, unless we look at some of the context behind it and about why this is such a deeply personal encounter. Because Jesus crosses all these barriers, and unless we dig into what's happening behind the text, we don't really understand it. So the first barrier is this. Jesus shouldn't really be talking to a woman. He is a, a holy man in Israel talking to a woman in public. And at the time, that was really frowned upon, particularly for devout Jewish men. They wouldn't be seen talking to a woman because it risked a, lot of st- a loss of status at the time. Okay, Don't get fired up about first century Israel. I can't do anything about that. I'm just telling you. At the time. It risked a lot of status. There was ritual impurity involved, as well as just town gossip and things like that. But Jesus crosses that boundary immediately. And then the second boundary that he crosses is Jesus is Jewish, and he's speaking to a Samaritan. Now, this is why this is such a big boundary, because the Jews hated the Samaritans, and the Samaritans kind of hated them right back. The Jews hated the Samaritans because the Samaritans were a living representation of their disobedience to God. The Jews had been told by God, I want you to marry and reproduce and, and have tons of offspring, but marry Israelites. You are my people. And the Israelites went, oh, that's good, but then there's some attractive Samaritans, some Samaritans and locals. We're going to get on that and start some relationships. And you've got to understand this has nothing to do with racial stuff. It has everything to do with obedience. It has to do with God saying, guys, this is my vision for you. And the Israelites saying, we've got a different vision. That's every time you run up against something that seems uncomfortable in the Old Testament, it probably has everything to do with obeying God. Okay? That's just some helpful subtext for you. So you've got this Jewish male and a Samaritan female. They don't work well together. They don't work well together. And then we come to the final boundary that Jesus crossed, and that's this. This woman was super dodgy, really, really dodgy. And a lot of the time in the Bible, there's there's a lot of accusations about the portrayal of women Sure, more accurate is to say this is how women were treated in first century and we are glad that we treat people differently now. Right, just like that. It's like a light. (laughs) But how do we know this woman in particular is not a great character? When the first five verses, we hear this. The woman is by herself coming to the well in the heat of the day. Now, if you live in the Middle East and you are living in the desert and you're going to get water, first of all, good choice. You need water in a desert. Just recommend that if you're backpacking the Sahara. You know, choices. Um, but the second thing is this. You, you, don't, you don't go in the middle of the day. Why would you go and get water in the hottest part of the day? You wouldn't. You'd go in the morning or you'd go in the evening whether it, when it was cooler. And in the Middle East at that time, the women in, in, uh, in Judea and in Galilee and Samaria, they were just like women going to the bathroom today, travel in numbers, strength in numbers, okay? So they would go, all of them mostly in the morning, go to the well, fill up their water, carry it back together. They'll probably help each other and be chatting and doing all of that. But here's this woman, this Samaritan woman, by herself, coming out of a major city in Samaria in the middle of the day. And that says a couple of things. One, that they probably wanted to talk about her more than they wanted to talk to her. And two, that they didn't want to be seen or associated with her at all. The other Samaritan women 
didn't want to have anything to do with this Samaritan woman. And we find this out a little bit later, that this woman has had five husbands and is now dating someone else. She's basically got a a living partner at home. Now, even for our time right now, five husbands is quite a lot. That's quite a lot. I know people who have had three. I don't think I know anybody who's topped that yet. Five is a lot. So this woman has built for herself a reputation, whether fairly or unfairly. And Jesus crosses the boundary. He crosses the boundary despite her being a woman, despite her being a Samaritan, despite her bad status. Why? Why does he do that? It's not just so someone can write it down in a book afterwards, right? Why? It's because everything Jesus did was a huge signpost. Jesus' life is almost like the world's greatest signpost, pointing back to God the Father, saying, look at God. Look at what God wants for you. And in this case, he's saying, look at the personal, relational nature of God. God wants to be in a relationship with you. God loves you. I will cross these divides, even if people look at me funnily, because I want you to know how much you're loved by God. How good is that? Jesus is so present, so present, And so Jesus encountered people in these natural ways, in ways that showed compassion, ways that crossed boundaries, ways that restored people back into community and relationships and into a healthy place in the social order. Quick example of another time he does that. Jesus is, is, when he's healing, he heals these lepers. Is everyone familiar with leprosy as a disease? It's not a great disease. Uh, Particularly, it had a very bad reputation in biblical times in particular. Uh, It was contagious, but it was perceived to be even more contagious than it was. So these lepers would come to Jesus to be healed, and they, he would heal them, but he would also do this. He would go up to them and put his hand on them and heal them. Now, not only does that make him ritually unclean, everyone around him is like, oh, Jesus is going to get leprosy now. You know, it was, he was in trouble. But he crossed the boundary because of the compassion he had for people. That's the personal nature of Jesus. That's how he meets us. But Jesus just didn't die so we could have good mates and be included in society nicely. He stopped and spoke to this woman, but he wasn't finished here. And this is an important message to take away because some of the schools of Christian thought would sit there and think it was sufficient that Jesus just came to be with us. It's true, but it's insufficient. It's not enough. It's not enough. I know lots of people who have come to be with me. It's very nice, but I don't go, hey, you are the son of God. That would be a weird conversation to have quite a lot. This is what happens. We examine the text and we look at what actually happened in this conversation and we begin to realize that it's just heating up. Let's go into verse 10. It'll be up behind me. Jesus answered the Samaritan woman, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw from and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as also did his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. And the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water, so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. So he told her, Go. Call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you've had five husbands and the man you now have is not your husband. What you just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you're a prophet. 
our ancestors worshipped on this mountain. But you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do, know, do not know. We worship what we do know for salvation is from or comes from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshippers will worship the Father in the spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshippers the Father seeks. God is spirit and his worshippers must worship in the spirit and in truth. And the woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, the one speaking to you, I'm he. I'm he. So the Samaritan woman starts making up her own arguments. She's just on the defenses immediately, which is fair, I think, because here's this dude who, like, if you're an isolated social outcast in the middle of the day, that's bad enough. If you're just some random guy camped out at a well without a bucket, you know, that's pretty seedy. I think Jesus must have looked pretty rough. He's crossing the desert, okay? I don't think he's, you know, like 1950s Hollywood surfer locks going. He's looking pretty dirty at this point. And Jesus is like, give me a drink. And the woman says, get stuff, mate. Why are you talking to me anyway? And Jesus then says, oh, you should have asked me for a drink. You don't understand. And she's like, well, you don't even have a bucket. What are you talking about? Get out of here. Get out of here. Like, honestly, like, Jesus is being antagonistic here. Right? Like sometimes we think Jesus, meek and mild. Jesus is provoking this woman on purpose. He's drawing out a response. He wants to get her talking back to him. And so finally the woman snaps. She's like, fine, fine. Give me your living water. Sounds amazing. Right? And then Jesus gives, has this, calls her out on her sin and her brokenness. And he kind of has this big mic drop moment. Right? He says, you're right. You don't have a, you don't have a husband. You've had five and now you're living with somebody else. She's going, oh, I just imagine there must have been some silence as she processed, how does this guy know what's going on in my life? And so then she sort of fights back and she responds the way that most of us do when somebody challenges us and our life decision and our values. We blame organized religion. (laughs) That's what this woman does. She says, all right, you Jews say we have to worship in Jerusalem. I I just think this woman was super sassy. Like I almost can't help doing a little like... You know, Bob, when I'm talking about her, I think, she, I think she's awesome. This woman, she says, you Jews say we have to worship in Jerusalem, but our ancestors worship here, right? I did it again. I can't even stop myself. It's the beat. It's the beat. Our ancestors worship here. They worship the same God. You're a prophet. Prophet that. Boom. Mic drop again. Hoodie up. Mum spaghetti all over. Oh. But there's so much going on here. Because this woman is hurting. She's angry. It's like, do you know what? I'm already alone. I'm already in the middle of the day. It's stinking hot. I'm hungry. I'm thirsty. I'm alone. I don't need you getting up in my face about water and living water and babbling on like that. What are you talking about? And besides which, even if you are a prophet, even if you serve this God, your God is just another man who's abandoned me. Another man who's left me behind. Where's your God in my life? Right? Our ancestors worshipped here. You Jews say we have to worship in the temple. Guess what? I can't go there. So where does that leave me? This woman is angry. And she kind of has a right to be angry. 
There's no structure in this society for her to thrive. So Jesus answers her and says this, no, 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 you've been getting it wrong. You don't need to be in a place to worship God. You need to have a spirit that worships God. You need to have a heart yearning for God. And this woman has one final pushback at Jesus, an answer born out of sheer frustration. She, it, it's, that, it's that conversation ender you have when you're like, I just, I'm just trying to get out of this conversation, okay? All I want to do is finish. Uh, well, yeah, well, fine. Well, but the Messiah is coming someday, so guess we'll find out then. All right. And Jesus stops her and says, hey, 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 I'm the Messiah. The Messiah is here now. You don't get away that easily. The Messiah is present. The Messiah is with you. I know you. I see your brokenness. I see what's all wrong and messed up and upset in your life. And I'm still here with you. That's the power of the personal nature of Jesus. But the second key point that you see in this is that it's not enough for Jesus to be a personal God. He's a supernatural God. He is God. There's a supernatural encounter with Jesus. Jesus speaks prophetic insight when he says, you've had five husbands, and the guy you live with now isn't your husband. Okay? It's supernatural knowledge. It's something that he couldn't possibly know. And Jesus didn't let the woman's sin slide. That's another thing we don't love to talk about in the church. That our brokenness is the thing that Jesus comes to address. And the thing is, we, we come with sort of this guilt response in the West, in the Western world. We, we feel guilty about stuff. Totally different in the East, very different values. But in the West, we come with this guilt response. And so when our sin is exposed, we, we just want to feel terrible. We don't want anyone to talk about our sin. But Jesus is like, you don't get it. I'm not exposing your sin to make you feel guilty. I'm exposing your sin to heal you from it. Because Jesus won't leave the broken parts of your life broken. He loves you as you are, but he loves you too much to leave you as you are. He doesn't want to leave you behind like that. He can't just leave you broken. He's a healer. He's a restorer. He's a redeemer. Jesus is in the salvation business and making beautiful things out of broken things. And he wants you to be made whole by having an encounter with a holy God. There are at least five Twitter drops in that. So go nuts. Jesus is so good. He's personal. He's supernatural. He is making you whole again. An encounter with Jesus changes lives. And this is where it gets really good. Because Jesus didn't just cross boundaries and encounter this woman in a personal sense. He didn't just provide an unexplainable supernatural encounter. Jesus transformed her life. He met her, turned her questions aside, cut to the truth of her life, and used that to show her a new way, a way that only works by believing in Jesus. But he did it with love and grace and compassion. Not by beating her over the head with her problems, but by saying, let me show you a different way. And after Jesus had been present with a Samaritan woman in that personal sense and had spoken into her life using supernatural knowledge, it's the woman's response that cuts the heart of why we're all about Jesus and encounter. It can always get better. Here we go, verse 27. Just then his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one asked, what do you want or why are you talking with her? Because Jesus. Then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, Come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? They came out of the town and made their way before him. So verse 28, 
the woman returns to Sukkah, the city that has isolated and rejected her, the city that has been her location for her consistent failures. I don't know if you've ever been back to the place of your own brokenness. It's not pretty. But she goes back there and she speaks to all the people asking them to come and see this Jesus, this Jesus that crossed boundaries and talking to her in the first place, this Jesus who challenges her and gives her life, and suddenly she's the one crossing boundaries. All the invisible boundaries that we put up around our lives, the boundaries that say don't push your religious expression on somebody else, the boundaries that say keep the weirdos at like a three-meter radius, which is why everyone's sitting in the back seats today, the, the boundaries that say... like. You are a broken person and I don't want to be near her. It's the same boundaries that, be honest, when you're walking down the street and there's a homeless guy there, you're staying a little bit closer to the side of the footpath because you think they might be unpredictable. These are the social boundaries we put up around ourselves and they are all built on fear. And Jesus crossed them. He says, there's no fear in me. It's only the presence of God. And she does all this with passion. Her life having been changed by this one meeting. How do we know that? How do we know her life's changed? Let me show you. This is so good. Verse 28. She left her water jar. Can you just chuck verse 28 up again, Christy? She left her... It was worth a try. She left her water jar... She left her water jar behind. The whole point of going into the desert in the middle of the day and getting filthy and dealing with this crazy man's crazy questions is just to get a jar of water. It's the one thing she went out to do and she leaves it behind because she found something better. She found a living water that will never run dry. And so she pursues that and she goes to share this message of love with the very people who rejected her in the first place, who left her isolated and broken. The change in her life is so profound that not only does she leave the water behind, she runs to share the water she has with the new people. The water is overflowing into her life. It's an ocean of grace meeting people exactly where they are. Come on, I'm preaching at least five times as good as the response I'm getting here tonight. Come on. Come on. What a message. She becomes what we call an evangelist. Somebody who declares good news. She doesn't speak this message because Jesus tells her to go and share a message. She speaks it because her life has changed. I don't know how many of you here are like that woman where you've, you've been sitting in your own brokenness and you can have already been a Christian, believe me, and you're sitting in your own brokenness and you keep going back to the place of brokenness back to the place of darkness and isolation and rejection, and you just feel like there's no way out, Jesus is standing here saying, I have living water. Come to me. Trust me. Lay your burden on me. Don't you want that living water? Aren't you sick of trying to do it in your own strength again and again? I get so sick of myself when I try and control my life. I try and do things in my own strength. And Jesus is just saying, just trust me. Trust that I love you. Trust that I've got a plan for you. And then we get the next miracle. The townsfolk listen to her and believe her and follow her. And this social outcast comes back to the desert in the middle of the day again, this time not to get water, but because she already has it. And instead of running away from the people in her town who rejected her, she is their leader, bringing them to an encounter with Jesus. 
So here's the third and most important point about an encounter with Jesus. Jesus doesn't want to just come and be with you in a natural way. Jesus doesn't just want to come and impress you and overwhelm you with his divinity. Okay, Those two are absolutely things God wants for you and Jesus is doing in your life. Here's the thing. Jesus wants to transform your whole lives so you become a passionate follower of him. Because I don't, I don't believe in sugarcoating this stuff. Jesus doesn't want to be option seven out of ten good things in your life. He wants all of it. He wants to be at the very center. Jesus wants to take the little match you have and pour gasoline on it and turn it into a fire so bright that people will come from miles around to watch you burn. That's what Jesus wants for your life. And here's why. Because reason can convince people's minds. And a touch of the supernatural can provide an undeniable experience for you. But it's the power of passion that changes people's hearts. It's the power of passion that's going to win the day in our society today. Because people are reasoning their way to whatever answer they want to. Have you noticed this? Say, we're applying reason and we end up here. Sure. Okay. We need to see hearts changed. Lit on fire for God. It's because God is more than a God of convincing reason. God is more than a God of supernatural power. God is a God of love. And it's the love of God that transforms and softens our hearts in a way that makes us finally ready to take that leap of faith and say, yes, Jesus, I believe you're the Savior. I believe you're the Son of God. I may not get what that means yet. I may not have had the supernatural encounter that, that helps me to, to trust by my own experience. But something's happening in my heart. And I can't, I can't change that. I don't, I don't know how to describe it. Something's taking hold of me. Later on, I'm almost done, I promise. In John's Gospel, in chapter 7, Jesus is in the temple in Jerusalem during a Jewish religious festival called the Festival of Booths, an agricultural festival. And he stands up in the temple and he looks around and something in his heart must be breaking. And he just says, cries out. The Bible says he cries out and says, anyone who is thirsty, come to me and I have living water. I see your brokenness. I see you striving. to. I see you making the same mistakes over and over again. Trust me. Make that leap of faith. I've got you. Come to me. Jesus is talking about the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God that lives inside us as believers and sustains us. And if you want that living water, if you're tired of trying to live life in your own strength, under your own control, it's time to take a leap to Jesus. What are the bad decisions in your life? The five ex-husbands that need to be swept away by an ocean of love and grace. Are you willing to plug yourself into a church community and encounter Jesus in the faces of your sisters and brothers in Christ? Are you open to God doing something supernatural and unexplainable in your life? And more, most importantly, more than anything else, are you willing to soften your heart and open it up and be brave enough to say, God, I don't understand it, but I'm willing for you to do something in my life. I'm willing to take that leap of faith. Because end of the day, guys, I could have given you a, a, a sermon that talks about the historical Jesus and how we can prove Jesus through history. You're still going to come to a point where you have to take a leap of faith. Still. 
It always requires that leap. You can get right up to the edge and you can have everything reasoned out. You can have had a thousand supernatural experiences that you're trying to explain away. And at some point you have to just say, yes, you are the son of God. You're the savior. You're the Messiah. Jesus doesn't want a part of your whole life. He doesn't want to just convince you he's good. He wants to show you he's God. There's one more part to this story. Verse 39. It says this. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony, that he told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, We no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we've heard for ourselves, and we know that this man really is the saviour of the world. I really, really love this. I really love this. I love that this really broken woman, broken person, her gender becomes irrelevant in that moment, this really broken person is able to be a missionary to her entire city out of her brokenness. I love that Jesus doesn't sugarcoat it, speaks directly to the heart of her problem. Maybe stop marrying dudes. Just take a moment to work out who you are as a child of God. He speaks directly to that, but then he brings her hope and healing and says, look, I'm here. I'm the Messiah. I'm not turning away. I'm not another man leaving you. You're not alone. You're not isolated. I'm here. Trust me. And it's so powerful that she runs home to tell her friends, friends, people that she knows. And they come, they actually come. And they're believing her and the testimony, which is just a fancy way of saying story. Her story is so powerful that these people come and say, we believe in you. But then the rest of them come and they say, you know what? We did believe in you, but now we've met you for ourselves. That's actually my deepest prayer that, you know, who gives us stuff what I'm saying up here? that you in your heart will have a powerful encounter with Jesus. Right? Well, that's, that's my prayer. I don't know, whatever. I could say lots of things and frequently do. I want you to have an encounter with Jesus that you can't explain away, that your mind can grasp and understand, that your spirit leaps for joy and that your heart is soft and just saying, I'm just receiving that. I don't understand it, but I'm receiving it. That's my prayer for you. This woman was not the perfect missionary. She didn't go to Bible college. She'd only just come to know Jesus. And really, all we know about her is that she was a social outcast. But she was transformed and she transformed her city. We know she was transformed because of the water jar. But more, we know she was transformed because people followed her. They followed her. People weren't following her before, but there's something in her now. Something in the way she's talking. Something in the way she's reaching out. Jesus has done something in her life. Because when you encounter Jesus, you encounter life. It's as simple as that. Just like Bonhoeffer said, you encounter God, you change. What I'm going to do in a second is I'm going to ask people to respond. And this is one of our cultural values, right? We're preaching through core values, and then we've got a whole bunch of just cultural values, like we want partners, not passengers, things like that. And one of them is that we're a responsive church because the last thing we need is like, who wants to sit in life just, just watching something. Don't you want to dive in and get your hands dirty? Don't you want to be involved? If you're going to change the world, don't you want to be able to put up your hand and say, I was in that? That's what I want. 
That's what I think Jesus wants for your life. So as part of being responsive people, here's what I'm going to do. In a second, I'm going to pray and I'm going to ask people to close their eyes, just to get everyone to do it out of respect to people that want to respond. And then I'm going to give people a chance to respond to the message that Jesus has for you, to encounter Jesus. That could be for the first time that you want to say, yes, today is my day. I'm willing to say, yes, I believe in you, Jesus. I'm willing to take that leap of faith. But it might not be that. You might not be ready to put that label on it yet. It might just be you saying, God, I just know I need you in a powerful way. I've been with you and now I feel like I'm in a crap place. I think I'm drinking from the wrong well. I think I'm trying to have the wrong water. Jesus, would you heal me? Would you fill me again with your living water? I need you. So this is for first timers and hundred timers. It's never too late to come and put your hand up and respond to Jesus. And the reason we respond and put our hand up is, is not just so I can see you, but because it's an act of surrender. You know, when you see somebody with their hands up like this, you, you think they're trying not to get shot. When you see somebody in a church with their hands up like this, they're trying to give everything to Jesus. That's what we're about.